This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a forum for courageous conversations about subjects that are hard to talk about. We have been off for the summer, and this is our first show of the year, and we're going to be kicking off a new series about living with anxiety. turns out that anxiety is actually the most common diagnosed mental illness in this country. So many people suffer from it, and interestingly enough, In finding guests for this series, it's the show that the most number of people have not wanted to use their real name. And I'm so struck by that because it seems that schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are understood to be biological illnesses and therefore maybe less stigmatized. But anxiety still has the sense of somehow being a a weakness. And so there is still a long way to go in people understanding its biological nature. My guest today, however, has opted to use his full name. I'll be speaking with John William Keady, a photographer in San Antonio, Texas. He currently has an exhibit uh, called It's Hardly Noticeable. They're all images about what it's like to live with anxiety. John has studied both art and psychology. He's recently completed a Master of Fine Arts in Imaging Arts. And his exhibit is currently showing at the Grindstone Gallery in San Antonio for the month of September. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, John. Thank you so much for having me. So on your website, there's a little bio about you, and it talks about how your artwork, your photographs, explore themes of personal identity and normalcy. And of course, so for me as a psychiatrist, ideas about normalcy are very intriguing. And I'm <clears> curious <throat> to know, when you when you wrote that, when you talked about exploring themes of normalcy, what... What what did that mean for you, and, and what made that particularly interesting to you to explore? Sure. Well, you know, I, I the idea of normalcy has always has always really interested me, and I'm really fascinated by this idea that um, you know we as a society can have this commonly held notion of what is normal, um, when in reality, very few people that have agreed upon this definition uh, meet those criteria. Indeed, it's um, like because, how small a number of people is it actually? Right, well, you know, where we can all sort of get together and decide, yes, this is normal, and then we all go home and and worry that we don't we don't fit into that. And and for you personally, um, as someone who I know has lived with anxiety, what what was a way that that you wondered if you were normal, and what way was that did that have sort of a personal edge for you? Sure. You know, I remember growing up, I, I always sort of felt uncomfortable around crowds, and um, and it, it never occurred to me to think about if it was if it was normal or not. Um, and then later, as I think I became sort of more self-aware and, and more sort of socially aware, um, I really started to worry about um, how I fit in and in terms of what other people were thinking. So tell me a little about when you were young and you worried about crowds, how did you worry about them? In what way? Um, well, you know, it was it was well a couple things. One was just the sort of the physical aspect of it. I you know I didn't I didn't like the idea of, of sort of being touched, even just sort of grazed by people I didn't know. Yeah. Um, and sort of the larger the crowd, the more potential I saw for me to um, embarrass myself in some way. Like the the way in which I might embarrass myself wasn't as important as the potential for me to do that. Of you know whether it was really working myself up into a panic or you know or even just tripping or you know stumbling in my speech. It 
the the means of, of sort of making a fool of myself were or just sort of took a backseat to just the idea that at any point it could happen. And the larger the crowd, the more potential there was for me to embarrass myself in front of someone. And so did you find uh, that you avo- avoided situations where there might be a crowd? I did. You know, I, I started, you know, doing some more online shopping, so I didn't have to go to malls and, um, you know, started going to the grocery store at like early in the morning or late at night just to sort of avoid the, the peak hours of that. Um, you know, when it was at its worst, uh, I was doing my undergrad. Um, and I actually, I um, sort of stopped going to class for a while to the point where uh, one semester I, I had to do a medical leave and withdraw from my classes for that semester just because I, I, hadn't, I hadn't been going for a number of months. Um, and the specific, was the specific issue mostly around a kind of unwanted physical contact with strangers or was it around the fear of doing something that would embarrass you? I think it was, it was more the latter. You know, there was always a concern of judgment on, on anything, whether it was, you know, what I was doing or how I was doing it or what I was saying or how I was saying it, what I was wearing, you know, there was that, um, it took me, it took me a long time to sort of come to the understanding that, um, you know, for the most part, other people don't really care about, you know, about or like aren't aren't paying attention to to me as much as I was convinced that they were. Um, right, sort of a, hum, a humbling. In, in other words, right, it, part of the part sounds, of the recovery was actually feeling a little bit more humble about your importance. It, right, it sounds sort of self-absorbed for me now to to think about how how positive I was that any time I was around other people, they were intently intensely studying me and, and, you know, just waiting for me to, to, to do something, um, so they could judge me for it. Well, in a way, I mean, this is what the humbling thing is about all forms of anxiety thing is, right? They're not really rational and we know that, but it is, doesn't always necessarily help to know right. that it isn't rational, sadly. So when you were in college, here you are, you're having this experience where you are studying about it and then suffering from it vividly and it doesn't seem to help at all. Um, mm-hmm. And you take a medical leave of absence. Were you diagnosed with social anxiety disorder? Was that the label they put on it? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I, I did my medical leave um, and, well, you know, I, I remember I was, I talked about all of my classes except except for my photography class that semester. Um, and that was sort of the only time that I, I braved campus. And I was on campus and I ran into, um, I ran into one of my political science teachers who was in, so nice and so supportive and, um, you know, and, and sort of stopped me outside of a building and, and said, you know, are you okay? I've, you know, I've been emailing you. And, um, you know, and I just sort of, I just sort of broke down. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. so... He took me to the to the registrar's office, and um, I withdrew from all my classes, and um, and and started being a, a psychologist. Um, and so that, you know, after after a couple of meetings, that was that was the label that um, that she she gave me. 
and it was both difficult, but it was at the same time, um, you know, it was it was nice to have a a label to you know have a have a sort of name to identify it. Um, but it also made it it made it so real. Right, it actually has a name. This is a real, and, and so we clinically we understand social anxiety to be this sort of excruciating fear of other people's negative evaluation of you. So right, and and how did she help you with it? Because it sounds like you're in a different place now. What, what happened with her in other ways that began to make a difference for you? Sure. Well, you know, it's um, I, you know, I'm, I'm it, it is something that I still I still think about. Um, you know, often, but it's 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 nothing compared to to what it used to be, um, and and part of it was, um, you know, her sort of helping me bridge that bridge that gap that we were talking about between this sort of academic knowledge and and the personal experience, um, and then just you know developing strategies of of how to get some of these things under you know under control, and then. Um, you know, make sure that that they stay in check. Like looking back on it now, and and sort of reading some of the the things that I wrote at the time, like I can see myself sort of slipping into patterns of behavior that just just exacerbated the the situation and sort of had it made it grow on itself. What would be an uh, example of something like that, John? Well, you know, like um, I remember, like I would I would miss a class because. Yeah, I felt like, well, you know, one this is one I'll go next time, and um, and then of course the next time would come, and I think, well, he's going to ask me why I wasn't there last time, so you know I'll go next week, and then I'll have you know I'll tell like, well, I was out of town, you know, the week, and so I would miss two classes, and then the next week would, you know, it's well, it's been already missed so much classes, and and so now I need a really good excuse as to why I wasn't there, and and so it just sort of sort of kept mm-hmm. the building and and I wasn't really able to at the time um, think about about the impact of each sort of small action. So a classic thing with anxiety is that anxiety makes us want to avoid the things that make us anxious. It actually temporarily gives us relief, but eventually actually makes it much worse. It gives it more power. And you're describing that exact phenomenon where you would avoid class and then it would actually make it much harder to even to go back, the anxiety would actually get worse, not better, by virtue of avoidance. Exactly. Did your psychologist um, prescribe ways for you to actually go into th- experiences that made you very anxious? Um, well, you know, first it was more of a sort of recommendation of, you know, why don't you try, try this, you know? And I would say, well, if I go to the mall, then, you know, then this could happen or this could happen, you know? And she was like, well... And like, go give it, you know, give it 45 seconds and then, and then leave. So did you do that, John? Did you go to the mall for 45 seconds and leave and sort of build? I did. I did. (laughs) I, you know, I I remember sitting in the parking lot, um, and, and taking, you know, taking a while. I was probably talking to myself, trying to get myself psyched up and ready, um, getting out, you know, walking up to the door and then I'm sure standing you know, outside for, for a couple of minutes just to do it. And then, um, you know, looking at my watch, like making sure that as soon as the second hand is at 12, I step in and then just waiting. And I, you know, it being the longest 45 seconds, 
that, that I had I had experienced yet. And, you so know, you literally stood inside the mall and watched your watch, looked at your watch. I, I did. I yeah. did. Yeah. So, and that, that first time it was like that, just focusing on, on, on the watch and not about what was going on around me. I got through it and then and then left. And after after a couple times, it you know it did start to to sink in that it was something that I I could do. You know I think I had spent so much time avoiding situations like that. Um, I had start I had started to sort of have this mindset of of well it's just that's just not something that that I do that I could do. As sort of uncomfortable as it was at the time and. It was very uncomfortable. It was almost empowering, you know, to sort of because I remember, I remember thinking, you know, it's it's never loved the mall, but I, I had been, you know, many many times before, um, and so it was it was nice to, to sort of reclaim, reclaim that this behavior, this going, you know, going to the mall that I had somehow sort of given up without realizing it. It actually reminds me of one of your photographs, because I want to switch out actually talking about some of your concrete images, and I'm looking at one of your photographs that seems to be so much about what you're talking about. This is an image of you, I think, or mm-hmm. um, standing on a sidewalk inside a chalk square that's sort of a white <laughs> chalk square that's been drawn, and there you are standing on the sidewalk looking with your to your feet kind of right up against the line. You're sort of like leaning as if, you know, can I step outside of the square or not? And um, tell me a little bit about what inspired this particular photograph. Sure. Um, I remember that there were things that that I wanted to do. You know, when a friend would call and I would look down at my phone and I would see their name and um, I, I very much wanted to talk to them. You know, I, I wanted to sort of explain what was going on and explain why I hadn't answered the phone the last 10 times they called. Um, but but felt as though, like, I couldn't physically get myself to answer the phone. You know, that there was this very real physical barrier for me that that was invisible for other people. Um, you know, that, that I felt as though other people really couldn't couldn't see and was worried that other people wouldn't think was real. Do you mean that because they maybe didn't experience that same barrier, they wouldn't get it or they wouldn't, they wouldn't respect how real it was for you? Right. You know, and, and I think one of the the most difficult things for me when talking about my anxiety then and talking about anxiety in general now is, um, is talking about the sort of the physical aspect of it. You know, I think a lot of people see it as this, as a, as solely a mental struggle, and that is that is, you know, most assuredly a, a part of it. Um, but there is a, a very real physiological aspect to it, or at least there was for me. Um, and you know, I had a hard time explaining that. And and I at the time worried that that people you know wouldn't I suppose wouldn't believe that you know wouldn't believe that there was this um, this physiological aspect to it um, because there's no sort of physical proof of 
you know, a cause for it. Although, so, although, actually, you know, some uh, functional imaging of the brain does show differences in sizes of the amygdala, which is a part of the brain that's associated with anxiety. There are some, you know, early research that's looking at, because, because you're, what you're naming, John, is so viscerally, it's the common experience of everyone with anxiety, is that it is a physical experience. It is felt as shortness of breath, you know, beating heart sweating, feeling like you're going to pass out. I mean, it is a visceral physical experience. So that does feel really, really worth naming, you know, that you're absolutely not alone in that, even though there's no blood test for it yet. Mm-hmm. Is that what you mean by physical? Almost like a more like I, a legitimate, yeah. like a concrete marker that will say, damn it, this is real. Is it? Is it like that? Exactly. Uh-huh. You know, it's, um, there's, it's, it's tough because, um, you know, I think, I think most people, especially in terms of illness, and and uh, I'm sure to to a degree, even even myself, you know, have an easier time um, empathizing with something that they can see. Right. Um, right. And so, I'm wondering of the. I would like to talk about several of your other images, but is there one in particular that you want to tell me about? Um, well, you know, one that. I think really resonates with with my own experiences is the image of the doorbells. Um, so there are two doorbells, uh, each with a thumbtack adhered to it. So um, pushing the doorbell would would require you to sort of impale your finger. Um, right. So the the, the pointy part of the thumbtack is sticking outward. Right. Yes. Um, and then underneath each of those, there's you know. Uh, a box with a name and this sort of nice orange warm light shining down on it. Um, you know, that, you know, implies that the, the doorbells do in fact work. Um, you know, they just re- require a, a, a degree of sacrifice. Um, and I think that it really sort of brings up this conversation about, um, you know, the, very, I think, mixed relationship between, at least that I felt, you know, between myself and, and others, you know, where um, this desire for a personal interaction becomes subverted into sort of an aggressive, maybe even tortured fear of others, um, you know, where these thumbtacks are, I think, are really trying to dissuade people, you know, from ringing the doorbell, but but they still worked the door, you know, the doorbell still worked, you know, a much simpler thing would be to just disconnect the doorbell, but because there is still that desire for an interaction with another person, you know, the doorbells are less functional. Well, right. Cause in a way, you know, the first way I saw this image was I was imagining you inside and that you were, you know, expressing your ambivalence. Say if I was your visitor, about having me come to see you because you're, you're basically warning me off, you know, you're saying like, come here, come here, come here, but go away, go away, go away, kind of thing. <laughs> right. um, but then as I'm hearing you now, I'm actually thinking about what it's like for you or imagining what it might be like for you to be the visitor. And that what you're saying is that, you know, there's this longing for connection, but that to do so, you have to kind of be willing to sacrifice something or be willing to suffer a certain amount right. of pain to, to stick that tack into your finger. And I think way, it, I think, it functions in both ways, um, and I try to make my images sort of the narrative of them open enough to 
you know, for people to, to sort of interpret it and, and put themselves into it. Um, you know, whether they are inside or outside, you know, I think that that strained relationship with other people is, is still there. I want to ask you about another one now. There's there's one of that um, you see uh, a man's, presumably your hand, resting on a, looks like a bathroom sink. And along the top of the sink, kind of against the bathroom wall, are a series of kind of lime green plastic teeth flossers. And they're laid out in precise formation. And then the sink itself has a pile of lime green flossers in it. I mean, I don't know. It looks like there maybe are about like 80 to 100 little <laughs> green flossers in a, in a mound in the sink. And then there's this beautiful pattern kind of underneath the mirror along the top of the sink. And um, to me, of course, as a psychiatrist, it, it spoke to me of OCD. It spoke to me of the need to order things and the need to also for cleanliness, you know, that uh, to floss your teeth that much. I, I didn't know if it represented like one flossing episode in one evening, say, or like, <laughs> or that these things became dirty and therefore you couldn't touch them to throw them out. But t- tell me what you were thinking with this one. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of the images um, sort of take take an idea, you know, whether it's it's a mindset or a compulsion or um, a fear and sort of push them to a, a very theatrical level. Uh, there is this really visceral, I think, reaction to seeing that many um, flossers and, and, you know, there's, there's a little bright bladders of blood in the sink and um, I've always, I've always viewed it as sort of one, one episode. Um, but for me, a, a lot of the, the actions depicted in a lot of the images um, sort of take a backseat to uh, the idea of these actions being performed, you know, the, the commitment to the repetition of action, um, you know, whether that action is flossing or, um, you know, making hash marks on a fence, um, you know, that, but for this this specific image, you know, it, so this action wasn't something that that I did myself. Um, but I know that it's you know, this sort of concern with hygiene is something that that a lot of people have, um, and the almost comfort that can be found and and the repetition of an action, even if that action is something that is hurting you. Um, is definitely something that I can understand. And that is, you, you know, you use the phrase commitment to re- the repetition, but of course for someone who actually has obsessive compulsive disorder, commitment maybe doesn't quite capture the power of that. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a compulsion that's almost unbearable to break out of. It's this kind of endless loop that often does result in, in pain, physical pain, but it's still very difficult to stop. Um, right. Yeah, in your image, you know, it it just captures the sort of torture of that quite quite beautifully, um, almost the Thank agony you. of it. So we're going to have to stop in a minute, but I wanted to ask you, often in my work as a psychiatrist, when I'm treating someone for anxiety, we have to we have to get into it. You know, we have to talk about it. We have to go back into a scene where it was. You have to feel it a little in order to work with it. And almost always there's this very big reluctance to go there because if a person's not feeling anxious in the moment it's like oh my god don't 
don't take me into that because once I start, it'll like take over. It'll be this visceral mm-hmm. physical experience and I won't be able to exit it. And I was curious, as you took these photographs, as you designed them and composed them, did you have to do that? Like, did you have to contact that? Did you have to go back into it and kind of tolerate it in order to make the image? And as you made the image, did you find that you kind of gained a little mastery of it in that moment? Or, you know, what was the visceral experience as you actually made the images? Sure. You know, I, um, I was, I was, to be honest, I was terrified of, of making these. Um, because of that, you know, I, as I make each image, you know, a lot of times it starts with going back and sort of reading some of the journals that I kept at the time. And, and even that is enough to, to provoke a, you know, a physical response. And, um, and then of course, performing these actions, um, you know, I, at first I was, I was worried that they would, um, you know, elicit those those feelings of those physical symptoms of anxiety, um, and then and which a number of them did, um, you know, and, and and it was difficult, and and I, you know, there are a couple where I, I started shooting them and and had to give myself a break for a couple of days and come back to it and then take a couple of days off, and um, and then there were a few that um, that I actually really enjoyed creating, constructing, um, and then that worried me as well, you know, <laughs> that, that, you know, when, when my anxiety was at its worst, like I did find comfort in um, sort of repeating benign actions because I think that it, um, sort of having, keeping my hands busy, you know, was a way for me to sort of engage with something and then distract myself. And, um, and so like when, when I would, would shoot one that, um, like there's, there's an image of the inside of a door, um, with, a, a you know, a huge number of post-it notes, um, put up and, and as I was writing on, on each one of the post-it notes, it, it, I, I, you know, I started started to get that same feeling of comfort that I used to get um, before, and that and that worried me because I thought, you know, am I does this mean I'm sort of slipping back into it, and is this gonna, you know, uh, am I gonna get drawn into the same pattern of behaviors and then end up? Um, I see. Sort of yeah, so the image, right, so the image has about like a hundred little yellow sticky post-its on the inside of a door where you're leaving to go outside, and it's like, it takes a notion of like reminding yourself to think about something to, to just a complete right. extreme. Yeah, so I, what I'm hearing you say is it, it, it almost comforted you and it made you worried that you could start to want to do that too much. Um, exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and um, so I think that, you know, that's just sort of a... a you know, a reminder that it is something that that I sort of have to have to um, you know deal with every day. You know, even though it's it's been a, a good number of years, um, it's scary. You know, it, it was it was sort of so intense an experience that um, I'm still I'm still nervous of sort of falling back into it. Yeah, it sounds like you still feel vulnerable. 
that even though you're in a very different place, it's not like you feel invincible to it. Or, right. Yeah. Which I think I think is good. You know, I think it's... It, because, again, you know, when... When it was at its worst, I had no idea that that I was slipping in, into this until I was so deep in it, um, you know. And so I think being aware of that possibility now um, helps me to you know to make sure that it's not not happening again. John. I'm going to have to end the interview. I want to say thank you so much for talking to me and for these powerful images. Um, if if you would like to see these images yourself, please go to the John's website, which is John William Keedy. That's K E E D Y. John William dot com. I know your your exhibit is up at the Grindstone Gallery. Will be for the whole month of September in San Antonio, Texas. If you live anywhere near Texas, <laughs> I, I encourage you to go see these images, or you can look at them online. Uh, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you for having me. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole show and you'd like to, or if you'd like to send the link to a friend, please go to our website, which is safespaceradio.com. We'll have a link to John's uh, exhibit there as well. While there, you can subscribe to get a weekly email to that week's show. You can also like us on Facebook. You can listen to any one of the previous shows we've done over the prior six years. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Jim Russell for being our consultant, Coming up next is Speak Freely.